Well, I welcome you to our uh, Sunday school class, our Sunday evening Sunday school class. I guess there's nothing that actually says Sunday school has to be in the morning, does it? And uh, as we are going through the book of Haggai, we uh, come into this second chapter. It's a short book. By the way, these are called minor prophets, not because they are minor or unimportant, but simply because they're shorter. They have some uh, really major lessons to teach us, and they're a uh, group of uh, prophecies that really don't need to be ignored, and they have a lot of things that are um, very, uh, I guess you would say, relevant to contemporary people because human nature doesn't change, and the things that they battled back in those days, we're still battling in one way or another today. And so we uh, have looked and seen that the remnant that came back from Babylon, uh, they're a part of the Persian Empire because Babylon was conquered by Persia, and as they come back, they are supposed to rebuild the temple, but uh, they start on it kind of like a diet, kind of like a New Year's resolution. Uh, you know, you get started on it, you have good intentions, but you just don't ever get back to it, or it's inconvenient. It doesn't quite work out the way you wanted it to, and so you just kind of forget about it. And these people apparently had kind of... Um, uh, after they laid the foundation of the temple, they just started living life, you know, having babies, raising children, uh, marrying uh, off sons and daughters and grandchildren, all of those kind of things. Over 16 years, a lot of things can happen, a lot of things change. And they just kind of got used to being in their life and in their world and doing what they needed to do. And let's also remember that times were hard during this. Uh, this was uh, not the most prosperous time in Israel's history, far from it. Their population is smaller, and especially in those days. You know, we kind of, if you're uh, my age or younger, we've kind of grown up in this idea of the world population being so big, we may not be able to feed ourselves, and a lot of nations have kind of gone to a, well, like China, a one-child policy, and Europe, as I understand, is pretty much at zero population growth, just replacing themselves. The United States, um, you know, we're uh, higher than that, but not by just a whole lot because we put an emphasis kind of on limiting family and population so that we don't have too many people. And we can debate whether that's good or bad, right or wrong. I personally think that uh, the command of God to... Uh, take dominion and replenish the earth is still in effect and that God has given us everything that we need to sustain whatever population he gives us but that can be for another time and another place but um, we tend to think about limiting and controlling and that kind of thing well back in ancient times it was particularly true that the nation that had the most people well, they had more resources, not less. They were the ones that could work. They were the ones that could grow crops, and they could grow more crops. They could do more, have a bigger army, for example, and conquer other nations and have the treasure of other nations. And that's how empires worked back in those days. So Israel here being called a remnant, you know, just um, maybe... Um, did your mom ever go to a fabric store when you were a kid and maybe there were some remnants? It wasn't the whole roll, whatever they call that, 
of fabric, but what was left over after some others had been sold, remnants, it's significantly smaller, in other words. Well, that's why that word is used here to describe the Israelis. The remnant is here. It's much smaller than it should have been. A lot of the Jews stayed in Babylon. The book of Esther tells us about some. And um, so this remnant is now, well, you know, they're just trying to eke out a living. You know, they got to do what they got to do. And they've got to work hard. And times are hard. And there's not a lot of money. There's not a lot of way to uh, kind of get ahead in, in this life. And so what happens? The temple just lays in ruins. So as we have seen, God has sent his prophet to tell the people, you know, to kind of give them a, a kick in the backside. And you need to get busy and you need to take care of this. Take care of the temple, the place of worship, the, ta- the place where God is honored. And it's also a symbol that when the temple is built, when it's standing, when it is functioning, there's always activity there and there's always a visible reminder in Jerusalem that uh, they are the people of God and they are to worship the true and the living God. Okay. Now with that all said, when they are building this temple, you remember um, God says, who among you can remember the previous temple? And is this one now that you are rebuilding, is it not as nothing in your eyes? And yet the Lord says, basically, I'm the God who doesn't dwell in a house that's made by hands. And I'm the one that provided you the personnel, the craftsmen, and the materials to build the temple. And whatever it is that I provide for you, that's all that I require from you. I heard a man say one time that when he was a kid, he was growing up in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And every year on dad's birthday, he and his brother would go to their dad and say, Dad, will you give us some money? We want to buy you a birthday present. And he said, and every year while they were little, uh, anyway, the dad would pull out his wallet, take a $5 bill out and give it to them. And then they would go down to the drugstore and they would buy him a like a new pipe and some tobacco and something else, whatever $5 would do back in those days. And then they would bring it back and they would give it to him and he would act surprised and be so thankful for what they gave him. And his point was, when dad gives you $5 when you're a little kid to buy a birthday present, he doesn't expect a $10 present. He doesn't expect a $100 present. He expects a $5 present. He doesn't berate you. Is this all you're going to spend on me? Boy, you must not love me very much. What a rinky-dink little present. No, he's thankful for it because he is the provider for the little kids, gives them the money, and he only expects them to get back to him what he gave them. You see the point? If God gives you a million dollars, he's going to expect a little more from you than somebody that he gives maybe 10000 If somebody is working at a a modest wage and they are giving to the Lord, God is going to be pleased with what they give if they are giving generously and proportionately to their income. But he doesn't compare it to the person who is a Fortune 500 CEO, for example, and say, why can't you be more like them? And in the same way, while they're building this temple, God wants them to know that the temple that you are building may be smaller and less elaborate 
than Solomon's temple, but I'm not expecting Solomon's temple out of all of this. All I want you to do is to honor me and to let me be the priority, the preeminent one in your life. Boy, what a great lesson for us today. Sometimes we think about what all we could do for God if we had you know, millions of dollars. Boy, if I had fame and fortune and influence, man, I could really do something for God. And I think the lesson out of Haggai is that's not what God wants out of you. He wants you to be you and to use your resources and to use whatever it is that he gives you, whether it's great or whether it's small, just use it and use it for his glory and... um Honor him in all that you do. And that's where the sin of the people was. They were not honoring God. So let's look with that at Haggai 2. And we'll look at 6 through 9. Oh, here we go. For thus says the Lord of hosts. So this has to be an important passage. This is God speaking and we're quoting him. Once more, it is a little while. And I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and the dry land. That's some earthquake, isn't it? Verse 7, and I will shake all the nations. So it's not going to be just localized. Whatever this is, it's going to cover the entire earth, all the nations that are on the earth. And notice what the result is going to be. More than just the destruction like of an earthquake, maybe the shaking here is more of a metaphor for something because the nations as a result of the shaking they shall come to the desire of all nations if you have an ESV or another translation it's a little bit different than that and we'll talk about that and he continues and I will fill this temple this little punk puny temple with glory says the Lord of hosts the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. And I think what he means by there is I deserve all of the offerings of the nations, but maybe also implied in that is, hey, remnant, money's no problem for me. And if I wanted to give you all the money in the world to build a more elaborate temple, I would, but that's not really the point. It's not that I'm short and I have to settle for something smaller. It's that... I want something smaller at this point. This is a part of my plan. So the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen to this. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Boy, it sure doesn't look like it right now while they're building it, does it? The temple, the, the glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is obviously talking about something that is prophetic. Everything he says here is talking about something that is going to take place at a later time. And notice, without fully understanding everything, because some of this is a little difficult to uh, know exactly what he's speaking of. Prophecies like that sometimes. Be very skeptical of some of these people who say they know exactly what something means. A lot of times they're wrong and they look like fools. But let's just take it as it, as it, as it unfolds. And first of all, notice 
This would be point one. This is a prophecy of power. When I look at verse 6, and without knowing anything else, just this verse, he says that he is going to shake heaven and earth. Well, that covers a lot of territory, doesn't, doesn't it? He's going to shake the sea and the dry land. In other words, I think he's telling us here that when he moves and when he gets ready to act, when he gets ready to do these things that he is prophesying, nothing will be out of his reach. Heaven and earth, sea and dry land. It pretty well covers it, doesn't it? Notice uh, whether we're talking about the God of the past or the God of the present or the God of the future, he is always an all-powerful, in-control, sovereign God who can do anything he wants to do anytime that he wants to do it. And so he's telling us that this is something that is very extensive. It's not localized. It's not just for one race of people. This is something that is going to touch everything. And uh, it seems to me like it's going to touch everything in creation, right? Let's move on and think about number two. This is a prophecy. Uh, we'll call it a pervasiveness. It touches Every single thing, every living creature and every kingdom and every government and every language and every people group, we might say. Notice in verse 7, and I will shake A-L-L, all nations, not just some, not just in the Middle East, not just Israel's enemies, not just uh, all of them, all of them, great and small, known and unknown, right? Every once in a while you read, uh, in the news that there's been a new tribe of people discovered that was previously unknown. Well, they're all going to be touched by this. I will shake all nations. And as a result of this, this is not so much a destructive type thing. Usually whenever there's a big earthquake, it sort of localizes and paralyzes people, right? And uh, cuts them off sometimes, kills them or... Uh, shuts him down. But this is going to be different. I will shake, or shake up, we might say, all the nations. And what are they going to do as a result? They shall come to the desire of nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, uh, just offhand, it sounds to me like when the Lord does this thing that he is calling a shaking, he is going to disrupt world order, disrupt governments, disrupt kingdoms and everything, and he's going to do it in a way that causes them to come to Israel, causes them to come to Judah, causes them to come to Jerusalem, and causes them to come to the temple. That's pretty amazing because that's never happened, and it's not happening now. But there is a day, there is a day coming when the nations are going to do this and it's going to happen at the hand of God when he shakes them up and he takes this little insignificant religion, this little insignificant temple, this little insignificant nation, this little insignificant race of people. And of course, I say that tongue in cheek. That's the way the world might look at them. And he is going to take this and make Jerusalem the capital of the entire world. And all of the nations and all of the people are going to come. And they're going to come. And notice that he says to this place. He's going to fill this place with the glory of the Lord. That is an amazing thing. To think about a day when you will see people 
like uh, Congress people and senators, presidents, but not only that, kings. Think about some of the Muslim uh, religious leaders and different people like that. Notice he talks about all nations. Can you imagine a delegation from Iran actually going to worship God in Jerusalem in the Jewish temple? Unheard of. Unthinkable. In fact, they would want to separate my head from my shoulders for even saying such a thing right now. And yet that's what the Bible says. In other words, the shaking up of the nations is not going to be so much a physical earthquake, even though he uses that as imagery for us. The shaking up that's going to happen is going to be a conversion of kings and nations and people from whatever religion they are now to worshiping the one and the true and the living God. So this is absolutely amazing. This is pervasive. It touches everyone, everywhere, in every situation, all nations. Now notice that this is God doing this. He's a hands-on God. Now when it talks about, in the New King James Version, the desire of nations, what in the world are we talking about? Well, there are a couple of things that we could uh, go for that are pretty, pretty popular. And I don't think either one of them are heretical or anything like that. It's sometimes Hebrew is an ancient language. It's a little difficult. Some parts of it are a little difficult for us to really get everything that is being said. Um, I appreciate Isaac. He's right down here helping me do this. And he and Gary have uh, basically been the reasons why these broadcasts have taken place. And I appreciate it very much. Now, what if you uh, overheard a conversation and it said something like this, Isaac beats his wife. And that's all you heard. Okay, what, what do you think that means? What do you understand that to mean? Well, you might think that he, you know, took Jenny and punched her out. You know, might be something like that. That would be an accurate translation of that, but it might not be the proper understanding of that. Because what you might find out later on is that they were playing Uno and Isaac beat his wife. You see how language can be a little bit tricky. And ancient Hebrew is a little bit like that as well. What does this mean when they translated it in some places, the desire of nations, and some translations call it the treasure of nations? Why would they do that? Why would that come across that way? Because, well, think of it like this. What is it that nations really desire? They desire to have territory, and they desire to have revenue don't they and so to bring the desire of nations could mean that what the nations have fought and warred for all of their existence now something has happened and in this great shake-up they are bringing what they desire most their treasure to Jerusalem into the house of God and giving it as an act of worship could be couldn't it it also could be that the desire of nations is talking about the fact that during this time, during this shakeup, what is it that has shaken up the whole world and pulled them together? You know what it is? It's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not in the rapture. In the rapture, that's where he calls us out and we go to be with him. But after uh, that, after the great tribulation, he is coming back to rule and reign on earth. 
And when he comes back, it's going to shake up the nations. And the nations are going to see him. And the nations are going to submit to him. And the nations are going to come to pay tribute to him and to pay worship, uh, give worship to him. And the desire of the nations is, in this context, what? To see Jesus. To honor the king. To honor the one who is the great God of the universe who is ruling on the throne of his father David. And they come into the temple to bring worship unto him. And uh, I think either way you go with that, I think you're going to be fine. Because it's talking about the sovereign rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. The coming of the Prince of Peace and the nations come to worship him, to bring treasures to him, to pay homage to him. Because he is indeed the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so um, I tend to think that it's speaking of the physical presence of the Lord Jesus. Now, some people say, oh, but Pastor Greg, that already has happened. You're making too much of this. And yet I would ask you, where does it give us any indication that the glory of the Lord ever filled that particular temple that they were building at this particular time? There is none. In fact, uh, Herod the Great came along and remodeled this temple that this remnant built. He added on to it. He made it very big. Some even say it was bigger than Solomon's temple. And some people say, well, this desire of nations and all of that, that's talking about when Jesus Christ was on earth and walked in the temple. Well, that's interesting because there's no description of the glory of God ever falling upon that temple. Remember Solomon's temple, when it was dedicated, the glory of God fell like a cloud on it so that the priests couldn't even minister. Never happened in the remnant temple or in Herod's temple. Never happened. And it certainly didn't happen when Jesus is there. In fact, when Jesus walked into the temple, there was hate and they despised him. In fact, Jesus even turned tables over, drove people out and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. That doesn't sound like the glory of God filling the temple to me. I think this is still future. I think this is going to happen after the church is taken out in the rapture, after the tribulation period, and at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign upon the earth. I think that's when the glory is going to come. And you say, oh, but that's a different temple. And God said that he was going to fill this particular temple. Well, I've got an answer for you. Um, let's see if I can find it here. This, this whole thing um, is talking about, in one point it says, I will fill this place. Did you see that? Uh, the temple mount, the place where Abraham offered Isaac, the place where David set aside the materials for the building of the temple, the place where Solomon actually built the temple, the place where the remnant is, Mount Zion, uh, as they call it, that the temple and the place there is going to be filled up. And uh, this is, well, let me just go on to point number three, and uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here, that this is also a prophecy of preeminence. Notice the gold is mine, the silver is mine. I got that backwards. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. 
And there's no, as I said, no record of this ever happening. However, if you were to go to Israel right now, you would see sitting on Temple Mount is a mosque, the Dome of the Rock. It's a holy place to uh, Islam. That's the place where they say that the prophet Muhammad um, ascended to heaven. So uh, they are going to take offense if anybody tries to rebuild a temple there. And yet the Bible says one is going to be rebuilt. In 2 Thessalonians 2.4, this is just one of several. It says, uh, talking about the Antichrist during the tribulation, it says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat, listen to this, in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. In other words, the... Uh, Beast, the Antichrist, is going to go into the Holy of Holies and say, worship me. And yet, there is going to be a time when Jesus is going to come back and be in the temple and the glory of God is going to be there. How does that happen and how does that fulfill the prophecy? Here's what John MacArthur said. This is what I got ahead of myself. The Jews viewed the temple in Jerusalem as one temple existing in different forms at different times. The rebuilt temple was considered a continuation of Solomon's temple. However, the eschatological, that means in times, glory of the millennial temple, whenever Jesus is here on earth, in other words, the latter temple will far surpass even the grandeur of Solomon's temple. So it leaves room for us to say that what God is talking about is the time in the millennial kingdom of Christ when Jesus is there in that temple and the glory of God fills it like never ever before. It surpasses the glory of Solomon's temple. The latter is greater than the first. Okay? And number four, notice that it is a prophecy of peace. You know, lately there have been some remarkable things that have happened in the Middle East with the United Arab Emirates recognizing the existence of Israel and several other na Arab nations are getting ready to do it. And people are talking about peace in the Middle East. And, oh, hey, let's say that's a good thing, right? Uh, any less turmoil over there is good for everybody. But it's not going to last. And uh, all of that is going to be temporary until the Prince of Peace comes. And the Bible tells us here, and in that place, I will give peace. In that place, in the place of that temple, in Jerusalem, in that hot spot of the Middle East, God says, I will give peace. And it doesn't happen with the election of a president. There may be good and bad policies in the Middle East right now, but peace is not going to come until the Prince of Peace comes and returns to the Middle East. The Prince of Peace will bring peace, and he will rule on earth from Jerusalem. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Zechariah 6, 13, and Acts 2, 30 tell us about that. So when we talk about the power of God and the prophecies of God, one of the things that we have to understand is that as we are thinking about this God who promises all of this, prophesies all of this, he's also the God that's actually going to pull it off. In his mind, it's already completed. It's a done deal, we might say. 
and how we could live our lives discounting him, relegating him to an hour or so on Sunday, and then live our lives any way we want to live them without thinking about him, without surrendering to him, without worshiping him, basically telling him, leave me alone, get off my back, I'll see you on Sunday. How in the world can you do that? It tells us that we don't really believe, we really don't believe what the Bible says about our God. For this being, this wonderful God, this all-powerful God, he controls and he touches every single part of our lives. And the reason that we're not as blessed as we might want to be or think we ought to be just very well might be for the same reason as the remnant. We don't really have our priorities in order. And so the remnant is to be encouraged. Whatever you're doing, it may seem small, but in this very place of smallness, in this very place where you see your own inadequacies, I'm going to do something great that's going to blow your mind and something that is going to touch the entire world. Because, as the title of our lesson says, little is much when God is in it. It wasn't about the materials or the size of the temple. It's about the glory of God that's going to come. This is the God that is going to bring all the nations together in Jerusalem to worship the Son of God and to bring peace, true peace, for the first time on earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe the promises of God? Because if you and I really believe that, then we, it, it would be impossible, let's say, impossible for us to relegate God to just a time when we gather in church. He would be filling every part of our lives. So we've got to get our priorities in order, especially in these wicked times, in these confusing times in which we live. May God grant that the people of God might have their priorities in order and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that's um, all I need to say about this particular thing. Think about that and think about the greatness of your God. Anticipate the future that he has for you because you're in his kingdom now and you will be then. And think about how wonderful this is going to be and how privileged we are to be a part of it and let him rule and fill every part of our lives. God bless you and thank you so much for taking the time to tune in.